Our New Testament lesson is found in Acts 2. We're going to be reading verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for your word. We ask that you would be gracious to us this morning to open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in this portion of your scripture in Acts 2. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series looking at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and asking this question, what is a gospel-centered church? Two weeks ago, we heard that the church is a learning community. It's built on the teachings of the apostles. Its foundation is the scriptures. And then last week, we heard that the church is a confessing community, proclaiming the king and his kingdom. So this week, we're turning our attention and going to look at the church as a loving community, a community that's captivated by the sacrificial love of Jesus that then extends sacrificial love to each other. But I don't know if you're like me, but have you found that people are fairly difficult to love? Not the people on billboards or the people on TV, but real people, the people around you, the people in your home, the people at your work, the people at your church. And I found this out particularly one summer that I spent in South Africa. I spent two months there, about seven or eight weeks, with 17 other college students in the college ministry that I was a part of. We were going there to minister to some college students at the University of Johannesburg, and we were living on this compound with three or four different buildings, and we lived there together. And you can imagine my naive, idealistic, beardless, young Christian self. My expectations for that summer were that this was going to be a greenhouse for Christian community. We're going to study the Bible together. We're going to pray together. We're going we're, we're gonna to worship together. We're going to love each other like Jesus loves us. We're going to give ourselves sacrificially to each other. And then I had to deal with real people. And they had to deal with me. And my expectations were shattered. There were girls that liked the same guy, so there was drama There were guys who liked the same girl, so there was competition. There was one guy who played the guitar almost all the time, and so we were so jealous because he was good-looking and he could play the guitar. (laughs) 
And then there was another guy who shall remain nameless, who thought he was the most athletic there. So there was pride. And then there was me. I was incredibly easy to deal with. <laughs> it was incredibly easy to love. You, I mean, that, you know that's not true. I was, I'm prideful. I have a self-righteous streak. I can be opinionated when I have opinions. My wife can tell you all of the ways in which I am unloving, unloving and unlovely. And friends, that's how people are. People are just difficult to love. Real people in the real world are unlovely and they're unloving. And you know this to be true in your own family. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish, but you do have to teach them what it looks like to love. And we too, in our marriages and in our familial relationships have a self-righteous or self-centered streak in us. You know it to be true in your workplace too. The ladder of success is littered with those people who have been stepped on for the advance of others. And you know this to be true in the church. Christ's church is not immune to these sinful, selfish tendencies. We are a people who are unlovely and unloving because we all share the same human tendency. We don't automatically become paragons of love when we walk through the doors of this church or deal with people. And so we read Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, and we grow incredibly uncomfortable because these verses expose us. They expose just how unloving and unlovely we can be. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus takes unlovely and unloving people and by the work of his spirit, he shapes us into a loving community. He takes selfish, self-centered individuals and he makes us part of a family called the church. And it's this church that will be marked by love. We see here in Acts 2, not the ideal of the loving community as if these were stories of the good old days of the church. But we see rather a pattern of love that's meant to be imitated and appropriated in our own personal context. We're not, we're not meant to become the early church. We're just meant to walk in their footsteps and learn the lessons that they learned about being a loving community. Because Jesus says in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He gives the watching world, a litmus test for our discipleship. Do they love like Jesus loved? Have they really been captivated by the love of Jesus? And are they loving like he's loving? So what do we learn about this loving community in Acts 2? We'll see three things that the loving community shares in common. First, love shares a common commitment. Second, Love shares a common posture. And then third, love shares a common generosity. Let's take a look at those in turn. So first, the loving community shares a common 
commitment. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These things united the people in the early church. But then if you were to turn over to Acts 4, verse 32, we have another summary similar to Acts 2. We find in Acts 4, verse 32 through 37, and these summary statements signal for us the pattern of belief and behaviors that the early church gave themselves to in their life together. It says in verse 32 of Acts 4 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And so these early followers of Christ were united in what Luke calls one heart, some sort of commitment that joined this otherwise disjointed group of individuals. Now, Luke is using the phrase one heart intentionally. This phrase comes from the apostles or from the prophets, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 11, God says that he's going to gather his people from all the nations that they've been scattered into because of the exile. Now, remember, the people of God were disobedient. They didn't live out the commandments as God had told them to and that they had promised. And so God disciplined them. And by doing so, he exiled them out of the land. But God promised to restore his people. He's going to bring them back in safety. And he says in these passages, I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will give them what? One heart. These passages testify to the new covenant community that God will establish after the exile is over. He promises to restore his people. And the overwhelming witness of Luke and Acts is that in Jesus, God has established this new covenant society, his church. God has restored his people in Jesus. And it's this church that God gives one Heart, one unifying commitment to one person, to Jesus. Jesus is the one who joins all Christians everywhere to each other. He is our God. We are his people. He is our primary commitment. And all other commitments in your life are subordinate to Jesus. Now this means that your political preferences are subordinate to Jesus. It also means that your social causes, your dietary decisions, your vocational priorities, all of these things are subordinate to Jesus. Y'all, in a world that demands that we pledge our allegiance to all types of characters and causes, Jesus stands as the one primary commitment for the church. He is your first love. He is all our first loves. And this also means that you cannot say to another Christian, you do not belong here because fill in the blank. You do not belong here because you voted this way or that way. You cannot say that you don't belong here because you believe this or that about masks or a pandemic. You cannot say you, you, you don't belong here because you voted this or you voted that 
or you hold this position or that cause. That brings us to our second point. It's based on that common commitment to Jesus that individuals within the loving community share a common posture towards each other. It says in Acts 2 that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. You see, the key terms here are fellowship, together, and common. These words indicate a general posture or a general attitude that Christians had towards each other. Now, the Greek word for fellowship comes from the word common or shared, meaning that the church devoted itself to a shared life. As those who share a common life together, the loving attitude we have towards one another is that of belonging. It's the posture a family has towards one another. And just like a family, we're going to have our squabbles, right? We're going to have our fights. We're going to have our our difficulties. We're going to disagree on things. But at the end of the day, we're still family. Because we belong to Jesus We belong to each other. We see this especially clear in Acts 10. It's there that God prepares Peter to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to those who didn't belong, to those who were outside of the family of God. And so Peter sees a vision. And in this vision in Acts 10, he sees a giant sheet Come down from heaven, and on this giant sheet are all types of animals. And a voice speaks to Peter, and it says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter responds to the voice this way By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this happens three times, and each time the voice replies, What God has made clean. Do not call common. A few verses later, he goes to a Gentile named Cornelius, and he realizes this Gentile loves Jesus, and so does his whole household. And Peter's response is this, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is, is, is acceptable to him. It's as if Peter has this aha moment. And he says to himself, these people belong to Jesus, therefore they belong to me. We are family. Now, a a few years ago, I was teaching my oldest, Maddie Grace, uh, to to love her brother. Uh, This is going to be a lifelong process. But... I would ask her the question, Maddie Grace, who's your best friend? So she would usually say Hannah. And, uh, but then I would say, well, Maddie Grace, yes, Hannah is your best friend, but, but so is Jack. Jack is your best friend. And then I would, I was, I've been trying to teach this to my son, Jack. Jack, who's your best friend? Miles. Even though when he and Miles are together, together, the three-year-old boys don't acknowledge each other's presence, Miles is still his best friend. Yes, buddy, Miles is your best friend. But so is Maddie Grace. So is Emma. Maddie Grace and Emma are your best friends. 
and what I was teaching them and tried to continue to teach them is at the end of the day when everyone else is gone, we remain. They belong to each other because they belong to me. And brothers and sisters, you belong to each other because you belong to Jesus. So what is your posture towards other Christians? Is it apathy? Have you grown indifferent? Is it suspicion? Are you always looking with people to pe- at people with a critical eye? Or are you relatively hostile? Growing f- easily frustrated with other brothers and sisters? But we belong to each other. Our common commitment to Jesus, it shapes our posture towards each other. We belong to one another because we belong to Jesus. And then this common posture freed the early church to be generous with their material resources. So the loving community shares a common generosity. Now this is where a lot of us begin to grow increasingly uncomfortable. Because we live in a world that tells us to protect our property at all costs. That what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, but you don't take what's mine and I don't take what's yours and I don't give what's mine to you and you don't give what's yours to me. But Acts 2 offers a different principle than the one that the world lays out. It's a principle of generosity to the loving community. It says in Acts 2.45 that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then in Acts 4, verse 34 to 35, it says something similar. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then it gives us an example. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's a principle of generosity, using our resources to care for others This is not a sort of early Christian commune where everyone lived together and shared property and belongings. That's not what this is describing. That would be, frankly, a little weird. But rather, this was a voluntary, periodic selling of excess resources for the meeting of genuine needs inside the community. It was the early church utilizing the resources that God had graciously given to them to bring about what God said in Deuteronomy 15. It says that there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Friends, God in his abundant mercy, along with his son Jesus, has graciously given us all things. And he has provided material blessings and the pattern of love that the early church sets out is a pattern of generosity utilizing our resources to be a blessing to those in need within the household of faith so how can we be generous as those who've been blessed by god how can we be a blessing 
One way to think about generosity is to use the categories of time, talent, and treasure. You may have heard these before. Time being the amount of free time you have in a day, a, a week, or a month. Do you have time to sit with a baby so the new mom can get some sleep? Or to sit with the older children so the mom can take the baby to, a, to the doctor so she doesn't have to lug all the babies? Do you have time to play cards with a lonely friend? Do you have time to grab breakfast or lunch and walk with someone through difficult circumstances? And then talent, being those things that you're good at. Do you find that you're good with money and you're able, and, and you're able to help train and teach people who are not good with money? I'd be grateful for that. Are you good with your hands? Are you able to fix things or build things and fix things in people's houses that they can't fix for themselves? Are you relationally astute and you're able to walk with people through difficult life circumstances, willing to walk into their chaos and to help mend their broken souls? And then our treasure. We have to think of, of treasure not just as our money, but also uh, the, the physical resources that God has given to us, our homes, our vehicles, the physical assets that God has blessed us with. Can you bring somebody a meal regardless of whether you know them or not? How can you open your home to utilize your home to be a blessing to others? All of these things God has graciously given to all of us so how, in grateful response, can we use them to bless his people? This also means that those who are in genuine need need to express that genuine need so that you can give the community the opportunity to be generous, to offer itself in gracious generosity, loving generosity. And friends, the point's not perfection. The point's not even that we get it right. It's about giving ourselves generously to each other because God has given himself generously to us. We share a common commitment to Jesus. So we belong to one another and out of familial love for one another, we give generously of the resources that God has first blessed us with. I'll close with this. A young man by the name of Joe Rance was on the U.S. Olympic rowing crew for the 1936 Berlin Olympics. But Joe's story starts many years before that. He was born in the Pacific Northwest, the second of two sons, and his life was fraught with pain, with difficulty, with suffering. When he was just four years old, he lost his mother to lung cancer. He had to watch her die. His father eventually remarried, and his stepmother couldn't stand the sight of Joe. They were, uh, his father was in and out of work, and the family was in and out of houses and small logging villages around Washington State, until one day, Joe came home from school to the family car loaded up with luggage. He asked his dad, where are we going? Looked, looking confused and befuddled. His dad looked at him, he said, we can't make it here. We're, we're, we're gonna have to leave, Joe. 
But the thing is, you're going to have to stay behind. Thula doesn't want, to, want you to come with us. He was 14, 15 years old. So his greatest fears were realized. He had no one who loved him, and he belonged nowhere. And so Joe's story is a search for someone who would love him in a place he belonged. A few years later, he found that in Al Ulbrichsen, the crew coach at the University of Washington. You see, Al saw something in Joe, and he wanted him. He wanted him to row on his crew. So Joe went to the University of Washington, and, and through hard work and through devotion and lots of pain, he earned a spot on the boat. And he found in that boat a place where he belonged. He found in his coach someone who wanted him. And he would do anything for that boat and for the boys in that boat. And Joe Rance and that crew, through sacrifice, through devotion to each other, would go on to win gold in the 1936 Olympics, beating the boys of Germany in the face of Adolf Hitler on his home turf. It's a wonderful story, fraught with pain and redemption. But you see, the biggest difference between Joe and between you and me is we don't have to earn a spot on that crew. We don't have to earn a spot on that boat. We've been graciously given a spot on this boat by the one who earned it for us. And he gave us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our spot in this community, this new covenant community called his church. He's taken unlovely and unloving people, and he's joined us together and made a loving community out of us. And because... Jesus loves us, we share a common commitment to him. Each of us sharing a common confession with the people here and Christians around the world committed to Jesus. And because we belong to him, we belong to each other, sharing a common posture of love. And because of that common commitment and that common posture, we offer our lives in generous sacrifice to each other. Let's ask God for help to do that. Almighty God, we do give you thanks that you have taken the unlovely and the unloving and you've made us part of your one family, sharing that common confession, sharing that common commitment would you teach us and train us to turn towards one another in a loving posture? And would you give us creative ways to care for the needs of those around us? Empower us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.